take your Bible, if you haven't already, and open to Romans chapter 3. Uh, it's the beginning of the year, obviously, and at the beginning of the year, I like to do things a little bit different and kind of make sure that we are focused on what really matters. And uh, to do that, we're going to be looking at one of the most important paragraphs in the entire Bible the next couple weeks. It's going to take us a couple of weeks. This will be sort of like a short mini-series on Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 21 to 31. But uh, today, I want to get us ready by mostly looking at uh, verses 19 and 20, which is the setup. So uh, you can turn there, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And we're going to talk about the question, how can you have peace with God? I want us to be uh, reminded why we should feel a sense of urgency about this question this year. And uh, also, I want us to feel joy that we know the answer. So in the next couple weeks, we're going to be doing some work. This is a kind of a thick passage, actually, and we're going to define justification and talk about the significance of justification by faith. That's what this is about, really. But I just wanted you to remind you why this subject is so important. So uh, those are my goals uh, for today, that we would, would feel a sense of urgency, urgency, you're hearing that word, urgency and joy about this question, how can I have peace with God? Because really this is an important question. It's one of those questions that if you, you get the answer right, uh, nothing else matters. And on the other hand, if you, if you get this question wrong, nothing else matters. Uh, when we talk about this question, we're talking about a teaching in the Bible called justification. So how can I have peace with God that's connected to this doctrine of justification? And this doctrine is a doctrine that we as individuals and we as a church either stand or fall on. It's not the only thing the Bible talks about for sure. There's more to salvation even than just how can I have peace with God. But the main Thing, or one of the main things the Bible is written to teach us about is how you can have peace with God. This is an important subject. It's a, it's a transforming kind of question. Obviously, uh, we know having peace with God is going to impact our eternal future, but understanding how we come to have peace with God should completely change the way we think about life now, our attitude, the way we treat others, what we think is important, what we don't think is important, what we boast about. There is a lot. It's an important question. How can I have peace with God? It's a transforming question. It's a, a misunderstood question. Or, or maybe uh, the question itself is not misunderstood, but the answer definitely is. And, and, and what I mean is that it's a question that literally most of the world gets wrong. They have a different answer than God's answer. And so there are uh, some things in the Bible that you talk to people about, and uh, even people without a Bible, and they'll say something that's at least kind of similar on the surface. Like, you, you know if you ask a few more questions, it's not exactly right, but you talk to a, a husband about his relationship with his wife, how he should treat his wife. There are people who will say, you need to love your wife, who have never read the Bible. They know about love. The, the doctrine of justification, though, is different. Humans, by default, are wrong 
about justification. In fact, a lot of times, even people who grew up in church or around the church are unfamiliar or confused about what the Bible teaches about justification. In fact, we know from the Bible, you can have the Apostle Paul found your church and then leave and have to write you a whole letter because you've become misunderstood, um, you started to misunderstand the doctrine of justification. There is a, there's a blindness when it comes to God's answer to this question that is sometimes stunning. Uh, one of the things that I've learned as a pastor, as a counselor, is never assume justification. Never assume people know what the Bible teaches about justification or that they understand it. It is one of those foundational truths. So you get the foundation wrong, everything else is impacted. And because it is a foundational, it comes under attack in every generation. It is important. How can I have peace with God? It should be transforming, knowing how you have peace with God. It's often misunderstood. And what's really sad to me is that even among those who know it, who can state the Bible's answer to the question, how can I have peace with God? It's still a truth that is uh, often neglected. It is a, a, a key truth out of all Christian truths. It has got world-changing implications. It is vital for living the Christian life out. And yet, as Martin Luther once said, we have to beat it into our heads continually. And one reason we have to beat it into our heads continually is because it's so easy for it to fall out, for us to forget it and neglect it. And that is probably more the issue, neglect. We can put it to the side. It feels almost insignificant in terms of questions that are really urgent that weigh heavy with us. It's weird, actually, it's strange how insignificant this question, how can I have peace with God, often feels to us, definitely to people in the world. Because the issue itself is huge. We're talking about God, we're talking about standing before God. And so you might imagine, imagine it's like there's gonna be a trial the Bible says God's a judge and he has laws and he made the world to work a certain way and God made us. Whether we like it or not, he owns us. We have an accountability to him. He's evaluating us. He's evaluating us even now. And there's a day in which God's righteous judgment of us will be revealed. And we're gonna see whether we've met his standard or not. And that judgment is gonna have eternal consequences. Heaven or hell. That's the picture the Bible paints, which you would think we would realize, it would be obvious, people would realize, is an important subject. This is, like, obviously something that should be taken seriously and that we should have an urgency about. Because what matters in life if you don't have peace with God? And what matters if you do have peace with God? This is big. It is one of those main questions, you know, and yet the truth is we have to work. We actually have to work to feel a little urgency and joy as we think about this question because most people in the world don't think it's very urgent or exciting. In fact, you talk to people about justification and, have, and how to have peace with God, it sometimes feels kind of like being an airline attendant, um, talking about exodiles. It's not that people are always actively antagonistic, it's more like 
shrug, you know, the, the, the question, peace with God. It doesn't weigh heavy with them. And that impacts us. That attitude can impact us. And we as a church can start feeling like there are a lot of things that are more urgent and desperate or more exciting. And really, they're not. They're not. <laughs> and so all I want to do today is remind you why this is an urgent question and why you should feel such joy if you know the answer. Four reasons. And the fourth reason is really going to be the sermon. So you're going to kind of have to wait for it. It's from verses 19 and 20 of Romans chapter 3. And that's where we're going to get into the exposition, exposition, the actual sermon. But I want to set you up for that. So, so be patient. But first, Romans chapter 1, if you go back a couple chapters, verse 18, one reason this is an urgent question is because there is a God. How to have peace with God matters because there is a God. And honestly, even if this were your first time in church, you know that. People know that. And in Romans, Paul says one reason we know that is because we can't open our eyes and look around without being forced to see the glory of God. It's all around us. But of course, as sinners, we don't want to see the glory of God because then we would have to submit to the authority of God. And so on our own, left to our own nature, we suppress it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, Paul puts it like this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so you see there, suppress the truth. That's like push the truth down. And he explains what he means in verse 19. If you keep going, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God. In other words, Paul's saying, if you look around, you'll see God's revealed himself in the world plainly. And if people would just rightly interpret what they see with their own eyes, they would be led toward God, but they don't. And the reason they don't is because they don't want to. They're like children who are being given instructions by their parents and who don't want to obey those instructions and so purposefully garble what is being said so they cannot obey and then blame their parents. And for unbelievers, that's the problem. And I want us to remember that's the problem because most of us were easily influenced by crowds. And so if one person says the grass is red, we'll think they're crazy. But somehow, if... 2,000 people are saying the grass is red. That changes us. And we'll agree, even if we're looking at the grass and it's clear it's not. And so nowadays, one reason many people don't take the question, how can I have peace with God seriously, is because they say they don't believe in God. And we can feel intimidated by that, even as Christians, especially when a lot of people are saying it. And yet the reality is that the people saying that are not neutral towards God. They're not kind of objectively weighing the evidence. Instead, they're actively suppressing the truth that is obvious, even to them. They don't want to believe in God, the God of the Bible. The real causes of unbelief and skepticism have more to do with problems in the will than the intellect. 
And you need to be careful not to allow people who want to be blind to cause you to shut your eyes to what you know to be true. There is a God. How to have peace with God matters because there is a God first. And second, that God does get angry at sin. So for people in our culture who say they believe in God, they usually want to believe in a God that they get to define. In other words, they'll accept God as long as he doesn't get to be God. And so the result is that we're constantly being force-fed a wrong view of God from people all the time. And one of the biggest lies that we hear is that God being loving means God doesn't get angry at sin, which is another reason why how can I have peace with God doesn't seem like a, a serious question because it's like, why wouldn't I have peace with God? He, he's loving. I remember hearing a, a story about someone who was married and yet he was living apart from his wife. He was in Paris. She was somewhere else. And every week he would go downtown Paris, go to downtown Paris and visit a prostitute. And apparently there was a Christian who knew him and who was sharing the gospel with him and said at one point, aren't you concerned about what God is going to say when you stand before him. And you know how he responded? He laughed. And he said, oh, that's nothing. It's God's job to forgive. And so he wasn't concerned about justification because he didn't think God took sin seriously and that as a result, forgiveness was easy, which is how a lot of people feel. And so if you ask a lot of people, how are you gonna be justified when you stand before God? It's like they don't really even understand the question. How am I going to be justified? I die, and then God lets me into heaven. It's like justification by death. And the reason they say that is because they don't think God takes sin seriously. That doesn't even come into their mind because God's love, right? Right, but the Bible tells us that the God of love is also a God who is angry about sin, and we'll punish it. And so even if you look back to Romans chapter 1, Paul, he does something interesting in Romans chapter 1. He says he wants to preach the gospel, verse 16 and 17. He's not ashamed of the gospel. He's excited about the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And yet right after, he talks about how excited he is about the gospel. You know what he says next, verse 18? He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And that is surprising because you have to think, why does he begin talking about the gospel by talking about the wrath of God? And it's because to appreciate the grace of God, you have to appreciate the, the wrath of God. God is angry at sin, and that anger is right. I used to, and for me to say that is something, I used to have real problems with the wrath of God, actually. And yet, you know what turned it upside down for me? It was that, that question, those doubts I had were really turned upside down when I started asking, what if I'm wrong? What if the problem is not God's attitude towards sin, but my attitude towards sin instead? Because the reality is God doesn't care about sin too much or too little. He has the exact right attitude towards sin. And if he didn't have that attitude towards sin, he wouldn't be the kind of God who's worthy of worship because sin is evil. It's interesting. One of the things uh, living overseas and especially uh, living in Africa where we lived is 
uh, one of the things I learned is that when people come from places where man's sin is less restrained, so it's not really that they come from places, obviously, where people are worse sinners, because we're all sinners, but where they come, when they come from places where sin is less restrained, and so I mean they don't have as many external checks like police or soldiers or, or government, and, and they did have a lot more external pressure, so, so what happens is what's inside comes out more easily. What I found is when people come from places like that, they don't struggle as much with the wrath of God. I mean, they had very few questions about the wrath of God. People coming from worn, torn areas, from places like the eastern part of the Congo had very, very few questions about the wrath of God. And I think it's because they knew if God is going to be a good God, he is going to have to punish man because they saw what man was really like. If we think God can just decide to overlook sin, we don't know God, and we're probably naive about people as well. And we're not really being honest about ourselves either because we wouldn't be like that. If, if someone did to us what we've done to God, there's no way we would be satisfied without punishment. Look at what people do when they are cut off on the, on the freeway. I was thinking this week, even if it was something as small as you leasing out your house to someone and they wreck it, they destroy it, you would want justice. And if someone comes to you and they're like, don't worry about it, why can't you just be loving? You would be like, that's not actually even the issue. I can be loving and want justice. We know that. And we're not even God. We're not even righteous. On top of that, it's kind of funny when people say, I don't know if a loving God will punish sin because if you just look at the world the way it is, you look at people dying, you look at people being terrible to one another, it's part of God's judgment on sin already. It's a consequence. And so if you wonder, can a loving God judge sin? It's kind of obvious he can. He did. He does. The, the, the question, how can I have peace with God, is an urgent question because there is a God. He is angry at sin. It's right for him to be angry at sin. He is a judge, and he will judge sin. And third, actually, he's judging sin right now. And you know what? The fact that so many people don't take the judgment of God seriously is a demonstration of that. That's what's so ironic, and it's where Romans chapter 1 gets a little scary. You know why many people don't take God's judgment seriously? It's because they are being judged by God. That's a judgment. So let me illustrate, and then I'll, I'll show you. But you know how we meet people all the time who are like, you know, we're good people. And so they think of themselves as basically good. And that's, that's everybody. You rarely meet someone who doesn't think they're good people. I've actually met a man who murdered his mother who was sure he was a good person. And the more, longer I'm alive, the, the more I realize his sin may have been unusual, but his... Blindness isn't. You talk to people all the time who think they're, they're good people, and yet it's so obvious they're not. We're like looking at their life, and they blatantly worship themselves. They're like idolaters. They're, they're not living. They have very little concern for God's glory. They're literally controlled by lusts of the flesh. They're uh, committing sexual sins shamelessly. They're being filled up, you could say, with evil, with greed, with envy, 
with lying, with pride, with disobedience, with gossip, and we could go on and on. And yet in the middle of that, what's shocking is that right as they're doing all that, right as they're doing all that, still, they cannot believe that anyone would say they're not good or that they deserve to be judged. Because they say, I'm basically a good person, which seems so impossible for them to say or think, you know? It's like stunning blindness. It's like someone covered in mud saying they're clean and, and seeming to really believe it. And you know, in Romans 1, Paul says something shocking because he explains why people do that. He says, one of the reasons people don't take God's judgment seriously is because they're under God's judgment already. So if you look at verse 18 of, of chapter 1 again, Romans, you see, when Paul talks about the wrath of God being revealed here, it's actually a present tense kind of verb. So it's, it's literally, literally the wrath of God is being revealed. And so he's saying people are experiencing the wrath of God right now, and they totally deserve it because they suppress the truth. That's the end of verse 18. Even though God's revealed himself, they refuse to honor him as God. That's verse 21. They refuse to give thanks to him. They exchange the glory of God for idols. That's verse 23. And the result, just look at this, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. There's a, a phrase that is repeated, repeated. You see, it says, therefore God gave them up, the beginning of verse 24. And then the beginning of verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up. And then uh, verse 28, God gave them up. And that is God's wrath being revealed. Paul's explaining. This is what you might call the wrath of abandonment. So one way God shows his wrath is by giving people what they want. He gives them up. And the result of that, you see this at the end of, of chapter 1, if you look down there, verse 32, is that people become so perverted that even though they know about God's righteous decree, even though they know about judgment, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. That's Paul's words, verse 32. Even though they know that, they don't care. They know what God says about sin and they don't care. The opposite, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And this is such a powerful explanation of a lot of what's happening even right now because we're living in this culture that's approving the very things God hates and it's everywhere. There's so much propaganda and it's ironic because as they're promoting all these sins, they're, vo they're being vocal about the fact that they don't take God's judgment seriously. And yet that is in itself a revelation of God's judgment on them. It's kind of like a guy being sentenced to hang, hanging himself and thinking as he hangs himself that he's proving the judge wrong. You can't hang me. There, there is a God, one. Two, he is angry at sin, and he should be. And three, the, the fact that so many people are giving such hearty approval to the very things that are destroying them is an illustration of his judgment. This is an urgent question, no matter what people say. This question's always relevant. How can I have peace with God? Because God does judge sin, and he will judge sin. And here's the fourth reality. You are a sinner, 
and you are totally incapable of justifying yourself. And now we can fast forward to verses 19 and 20 of Romans 3 and really get into the, the sermon. No amount of religious activity can ever justify you before God. You cannot achieve forgiveness from God or acceptance by God through your own obedience to God, which no matter how often we hear it, it's still really hard for us to believe because the truth is many of us are closet legalists. And so we look to ourselves for what God says Jesus is supposed to do for us. And that's ultimately because really we're also closet self-worshippers. And some of us not so in the closet actually, but it's like I've said before, you can imagine two kinds of beggars. And so you've got beggars who come to your door and they're like, I've got nothing. And I know for us in Africa, this would sometimes be overwhelming because you'd have people who'd be so desperate, they're like throwing themselves on you, almost like, here's my life, please take over it, I can't do it. And then you've got beggars who aren't quite that, that desperate, and so they know they're in trouble, and they don't have a problem admitting to you that they have some problems in their life, but they still feel capable, and so they're more like, you know, I just need a little help. You help me, and I can, kind of, I can get my life together. And I think that's more how we are tempted to live our lives with God. It's not that we don't think we need God's grace. We know we need God to be, to be gracious, but not that gracious, really. He'll save us by his grace if he sees that we try. It's almost like we kind of naturally think of God as, as sort of grumpy. And so we have to motivate him. We kind of have to let him, we kind of have to get him moving by doing some things that he might like. You have to understand the heart of legalism is, is really not so much thinking you can earn your way to heaven as much as thinking you can secure God's favor through law keeping and your, your own efforts, that like you can help God. And the problem with that, one of the problems with that is to enjoy the Bible's answer to the question, how, I can have, how can I have peace with God? You absolutely have to see how impossible that is and, and feel how impossible that is. In other words, to know how gracious God is, we first have to realize how bad we are. And to help you see that in Romans, uh, it's like Paul brings up an illustration for the sake of argument. You know how sometimes when you're trying to prove a point, you use a third party as an illustration. And that's kind of what Paul does here to help you get a feel for how much you need the gospel. Paul's like, let's take the best case scenario when it comes to standing before God on judgment day. And so if there were one group in the world that you might think would have a chance to earn favor with God somehow through uh, what they do, who would you guess it could be? You might guess it could be perhaps a Jew, because after all, most of the Old Testament is about them, and God's talk, constantly talking about how much he loves them, and they were given a lot of spiritual privileges, and as we read the Old Testament, it's just a fact they stand apart. And so Paul here in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, is like, let's think about whether that could work by going back to God's law. The Jews had the law, which was a huge privilege. So what does the law say to those under the law? Paul's like, verse 19, now we know. So 
this is obvious. Whatever the law says, it speaks. And he's going to tell us four things about the law. And this is the first. The law speaks. And who is it speaking to? At the very least, it's speaking to the ones God gave it to, right? Having the law is a privilege. And yet Paul's point here is that it's a privilege not just for people to read. It says something to the people reading it. Now we know whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law. And there are those without the law. Those were Gentiles. But there were also those under the law. They did have the revelation, the Jews. And obviously Paul's saying God's revelation has something to say to those people to whom he gave it. It wasn't just for them to use to judge other people, which of course is always the temptation to feel superior because of what you know and satisfy, satisfy that you do know, even if you're not putting it into practice. And Paul's like, no, that's not how it's supposed to work. If, if anything, reading God's word and being given God's law should make you more humble, not more proud, because what has the law said about those under the law? And we don't have to guess, because in verses 9 through 18, Paul summarizes what the law says. Look at it. He says, what then? Are we Jews better off? Yes, in a sense, they're better off in terms of spiritual privileges because they had the law, the revelation of God. But no, they're not better off when it comes to standing before God on judgment day if they haven't obeyed the law. And if you look at the law, it's clear they hadn't. And so verse 9, are we Jews any better off? No, Paul says, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin as it's written. And now what Paul does is bring up proof from the Bible. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. You know, when, uh, when uh, people would visit us in Africa, um, Americans, you could really get Americans to feel bad by driving past like a, a place where there's tin shacks or like a, a, uh, a shanty town. You can really get Americans to feel bad because you see, you just can't imagine living like that. It's so sad. They're so poor. And yet, you know, we come back here and we feel like people are, are fine. You know, where's the urgency? They're not fine. None is righteous. You hear the universality of that. No one, all, together, not even one. When we look at the world, we divide the world up into good or bad people, depending on our evaluation of their actions. But if we take the actual law of God that he uses as his standard of judgment and evaluate people, even the best people, we see that there's only one group, and that's the wicked. And I think it's significant the way Paul puts it at the end of verse 9 when he says we're all under sin. Think about that preposition, under because sometimes we think the problem is people have done a few bad things. And yet Paul says the real problem is a lot deeper than that because sin is not just something you do. It's like a power. It's like a principle in people's lives. And so throughout Romans, Paul talks about sin reigning, sin enslaving, sin exercising authority. And he describes sin as being like a condition, a state we're in. It's sort of like death. When you're dead, that's not just something you do. That's a condition that you exist in. And that, according to God's law, is the state we're all born into. Even the most religious person, even the group of people who experience the most spiritual privileges apart from Christ are under sin. We, we all turned aside. We all became useless, according to, according to Paul. In other words, there's not a single one of us who did good. 
I heard R.C. Sproul one time, uh, someone asked him, what about the innocent person out there in a place who's never heard the gospel? What will happen to the innocent person on Judgment Day? And R.C. Sproul was like, the innocent person? What will happen to him? He'll go straight to heaven, obviously. The problem is there are no innocent people. Romans chapter 1, the the ones without God's word have rejected what God made obvious in the world. And the ones with God's word, Romans 2, Romans 3, it's almost worse because they can see what is true and yet they just won't do it. And if you want any proof of that, read the Bible. So if you want to know how under sin we are, imagine, imagine, what do you think would happen if God worked with one group of people for thousands of years? So God's like, let's focus. And he takes this one group of people, and he sends them prophet after prophet after prophet, and he does real miracles, like big miracles in their midst. And then he, he, he disciplines them when they sin, and he shows them mercy, and he shows them patience, and he, he tells them what's going wrong, he tells them why it's going wrong, and then he explains how to solve their problems, and in detail he describes the one he's going to send to solve their problems. What if, imagine, what if the Son of God even became man himself, and then he came to those people whom he had been preparing, and then he did all the things he said he would, and he fulfilled all the prophecies to the letter, what would happen? Are people inherently good? Is religious activity enough? What would happen if God did all that? We know what would happen. They would take the Son of God, and they would nail him to a cross, and they would crucify him, not because they are worse than everybody else. They're like the best of everybody else. And so if we somehow feel like we're good people and this question of justification isn't urgent because of some of the privileges that we have experienced, we're seriously deluded because Paul's like, look at this person who was as privileged as you, if not more, in that they're part of this special race. And what does the law say about them? The law speaks. It speaks clearly. It says there is none righteous, no, not one. And that's like the judgment before the judgment. So, so the judgment's read before you even get to judgment day. You wonder, am I righteous? Look to the law, Paul says. There's none righteous. No, not one. That's man's natural condition. Even people like the Jews with all these spiritual privileges. And Paul, he, he goes on. He brings up some more proofs of that. He, look first at the way people speak. Verse 13 and 14. And speech is a good one because we are always talking. So that really reveals who you are. According to the law, how do people use the speech God's given them? Their throat is an open grave. And, of course, a grave holds a dead body, and the Jews would have seen dead bodies as being something that defiled them. The worst thing would be to fall into an open grave. And yet Paul says we don't have to fall into an open grave because that open grave is already inside of us. Our speech is constantly defiling us and defiling others. And if you want proof of that, Paul gives one. He says, They use their tongues to deceive. And again, these are religious people. God gave us our mouths to speak the truth. And yet if you look at the way people use the words God gave them, it's like they're constantly speaking lies. Not just to others, actually also to themselves. And and then Paul gives another picture at the end of verse 13. He says the venom of asps is under their lips. And that's 
snakes, obviously, and he's talking about poison. Imagine, what would you think if someone was going around jabbing people with poison, and then if they told you they were good people? And I'm not talking about vaccines. Come on. Vaccines are good. They're helpful. <laughs> what if people were injecting people with actual poison and, and, and calling themselves good? And, and yet people are constantly injecting verbal poison into others. And Paul gives a couple examples in verse 14. He says, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I remember a couple years ago, uh, Marta and I, we were uh, visiting this apartment building near our house in, in South Africa. And so we thought, wouldn't it be cool? We always have too many dreams. We thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could buy an apartment and then we could uh, let people from our church use it? And of course, we couldn't do that, but we, we, we dreamed anyway. And we went down and uh, we went to this uh, building near us. We call it the Apartheid Museum now because of what we found out. But we were uh, there sitting in uh, this lobby with this little old grandma. And she was probably 70 or 80. And this is a sad story, so get ready for it. Um, it's horrible. But at first, it didn't seem like it was going to be horrible because she just seemed like a nice old grandma. And she was talking to us very sweetly about our family. And then we told her some things about our family. And the moment we told her certain things about our family, she just started spewing absolute hatred towards people who were a different color than her. And I was looking at her, and I was like, wow, you know, if I saw her without her mouth open, I would think this is a nice lady, and I'm sure she was plenty nice to certain people, but her mouth was full of curses and bitterness. And the thing is, she's not unique. That's the point. We're like, oh, we're so good. We're so good. We feel content because we're judging ourselves by our own standard. It's crazy. Imagine if you thought you were the judge of yourself at the Olympics, and you're out there on the gymnastics floor, and you like, have no clue what you're doing. You're tripping over yourself. You're kind of like rolling around. And at the end, everybody's looking at you, and they're like, what a fool. And you're like, I win. Where's the gold? Obviously, that's not how it works. You're, you're always going to be a winner when you judge yourself by your own standard. But that's not how Judgment Day works. God's got a righteous standard, and he's revealed what it says about people. Take the best person. They're not righteous. And proof of that is the way they speak but also the way they act, verses 15 and 16. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And why ultimately, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And remember, Paul's not going out there to some place where people never had the Bible and bringing someone in and saying, look at this guy. He's an example of how sinful we are. We're so proud, you know, sometimes we're just thinking, Ah, uh, you know, people somewhere else are so much worse because their sin seems so much more obvious. But that is not true at all. And Paul's proving that by bringing in someone who's have every spiritual privilege and is super religious and is so sure that he's right with God. And Paul's like, look at this guy. Look at what God's law says about him. He's absolutely damned if he gets what he deserves. Which brings us to the second part of Paul's argument. First, the law speaks clearly. It condemns these people who had all these spiritual privileges, which should silence us. The law speaks, the law silences. I mean, here's the point. If the Jews who had the privilege of being God's chosen people could not keep the law, it follows that absolutely none of us can. Paul says, now that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that 
which is like a purpose statement or a goal. The reason the Bible is so clear about the continued failure of the Jewish people to obey God's law is not so the rest of us can look at what happened and say, weren't they especially bad? We should have the opposite reaction. It's, it's more like looking at someone who, I don't know, you could say he was born and bred to pass a certain test. And so it's like you meet this guy, his parents were super smart in this area. And his parents, I mean, like had the money and they were able to give this person every possible advantage. They had like tutors from the age of two. They were studying all the time. And imagine you had none of that. Maybe you never even went to school. You can't even read. And you see this person who had every advantage go and take the test and fail miserably. How are you supposed to respond? Not by saying, I bet I can pass. Obviously, no. And that's Paul's point. As we're looking at what God says to those under the law, to these Jewish people, how it exposes their sinfulness, what is the good of us knowing that? The good is that it stops us from thinking that we could somehow stand before God on the basis of our own efforts. Quoting verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God which is courtroom language. It's, it's like you're in the dock, you're waiting for an opportunity to go before the judge. And maybe as you're sitting there, you can imagine you're a little bit confident because you'd like Googled like the court case and you think somehow you can represent yourself. And you think, yeah, I think Google says I have a good uh, case. So you're sitting there in the dock with your like phone open, desperately looking at um, how to defend yourself. And as you're waiting, there's someone who goes before you and you realize, wow, this guy actually was in law school. <laughs> And he's actually got good arguments. Like, he's just, like, came out of Harvard. He's ready to go, you know. And we're sitting there listening as the judge just blows that case up. And, and, and the guy walks away humiliated. And all of a sudden, it's obvious. We've got nothing that we can use to plead our innocence. Why? In verse 20, Paul takes us deeper. The best hope, why? It's because the best hope that we can come up with ourselves for being acquitted by the judge on judgment day would be, you think, you would think, the works of the law. Because the law is good, it's God's law. And so you'd imagine, man, if you had that law, you knew what God wanted, then you could possibly stand on judgment day because it's like the judge gave you the law. He told you what he wanted. And yet as you're reading the Old Testament and looking at Israel, it's obvious that didn't work which is point number three as Paul's building his case. He takes what we've seen and he lays it down as a principle. On judgment day, there's nothing any of us can point to in our lives in terms of our religious activity, our obedience, that will enable us to stand before God and not be judged for, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. The law speaks, that's one. Two, the law silences. The law does a lot of things, but one thing the law does not do, number three, the law does not save. And so if you're asking, are there going to be people God is, is, is happy with because they themselves, on their own, through their own efforts, live such good lives, where he's going to say, yeah, I look at your life and I, I look at my law and you measure it up. If that's what you're asking, Paul's answer is pretty simple. Are they a human being? 
because there is no human being who will be able to enter into heaven and find favor with God because he's been declared righteous by the judge on judgment day on the basis of how he personally kept God's law, which is intense, I know, but it's important because we'll never understand or appreciate or enjoy or feel urgent about what the Bible teaches about how to have peace with God until we understand that. This is an urgent question. It matters because there is a God. He is angry at sin. He should be. And the, the fact that so many people around us aren't concerned about Judgment Day while they're destroying themselves and they're destroying society is actually proof of his judgment. No matter how good you feel about yourself and how good you tell yourself that you are, if you pick up your Bible and look at the history of the most spiritually privileged people on the planet, you'll see we're not as good as we think. The fact is, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since. And this is step number four as Paul's wrapping up his argument. We can't be justified by our obedience to the law since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law speaks, it silences, it doesn't save, but what does it do? It reveals, it reveals. In other words, if you're sitting there and not feeling deeply why you need the righteousness of Christ. It's because you don't really know God as well as you think you do. Don't tell me all your little systematic theology quotes. Show me. Do you feel desperation? Do you understand? Have you ever, have you ever understood how urgent this question is? Because if you haven't understood how urgent this question is, you definitely don't know God's law. Because if you do know God's law, if you study God's law and look carefully at God's standards and then go out there and actually try to keep them on your own, what you're going to find is that you absolutely can't. And the more you try on your own, the more you sin. You're going to see sin in your life almost everywhere. And that's hard. We don't like that. But it's actually helpful. Tools have a purpose, you know. A good tool for the wrong purpose is going to be frustrating. And, and so all this religious activity that we do at church and especially our study of God's word, if the purpose is somehow to help you personally achieve the standard where you're going to be able to stand before God on judgment day and have him look at you and say, you deserve this. You're the one. I finally found somebody who deserves this. You're going to be disappointed. Because the law, God's word, can help you in a lot of ways, but if you're trusting in it somehow to earn favor with God through your own efforts, you're going to be disappointed and you're going to hate it because the law, God's word, it exposes sin. It reveals, which obviously for a lot of people is something they hate. And so this whole message is a message they hate. You're not good if you stand before God on your own. It would be right for God to judge you. That is a message people hate. And resist. You know, sometimes that's why they even hate God's word. They don't want to go to a, a place where they'll get a thorough study of God's word because it exposes them. And you could understand that if the goal of this whole thing was somehow to get a righteousness through your own efforts that you could use to earn God's favor and make a grumpy God happy with you. But it's not. That is not how a man is justified with God. That's not what this whole thing is about. 
And Paul is going to tell us how a man is justified, how we have peace with God, and that's next week. But, but today, what I want you to hear is that you'll never appreciate and you'll never get excited about what Paul says about how you're justified until you feel your need for it. Quoting John Calvin, we shall never be clothed with the righteousness of Christ until we first know that we have no righteousness of our own. And if we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, if we're going to be excited about that and feel urgent about getting that message out, we have to remember that we have no righteousness of our own, which is really hard for most of us to remember. It's so hard for our hearts to believe what the Bible says about how gracious God is and to believe what the Bible says about how sinful we are. We like want half a gospel, God not being that gracious and us not being that sinful. And so we easily slip back into thinking of God as mostly grumpy and hard and ourselves as only half bad. And I don't want to be naive either because I'd imagine there may be some of you here who have never really seen your need of Christ. And you know, you know that you have some problems. Who doesn't have problems? But you think you, you need only a little help from God. God will give grace to me if he sees that I try. You realize that's heresy. That's like a damning heresy when it comes to salvation. The, the typical person doesn't mind being told they're a mixture of good and bad. And so what most people really want deep down is they want a religion that offers them a little help overcoming the bad. But the gospel is different. This is part of why we exist as a church. We've got this absolutely unique message. Because the gospel comes and it says, you don't need help. You need a savior. Amen. The first step to heaven is to be convinced that you deserve hell. As Martin Luther once said, the true way to Christianity is first to acknowledge that we're sinners according to the law and that it's impossible for us to do anything good. Therefore, you cannot earn grace by what you do. If you try, you double your offense. For since you are a bad tree, you can only produce bad fruit, that is, sins. Anyone who wants to merit grace by works before having faith is trying to please God with sins, which is nothing but heaping sin upon sin and mocking God and provoking his wrath. When a person's taught this, he's terrified and humbled and sees the extent of his sin and cannot find in himself one spark of the love of God. Therefore, he confesses that he's guilty of death and eternal damnation. The first part of Christianity, then, is the preaching of repentance and self-knowledge. The second part is this. If you want to be saved, you must not seek salvation through works. God has sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. He was crucified and died and bore your sins in his own body. God has revealed to us by his word that he will be a merciful father to us. And without our deserving it, since we deserve nothing good, he will freely give us forgiveness of sins, righteousness, and everlasting life for the sake of Christ his son. God gives his gifts freely or not at all. Which is so important you understand if you're not a Christian. God gives his gifts freely or not at all. 
And it's so important you remember if you are a Christian. Because we won't be saved without understanding our need of Christ for sure. But we won't grow if we don't remember it. We're complicated and simple. And so often our problems get complicated because we're failing to do something that seems very simple. The more we assume we can rely on ourselves, the less we desire Christ, the less we experience joy in Christ, the less urgent we are about the gospel. In fact, there's an old saying, I, I love this saying. They say, hunger makes the best cook. And what they, they mean is, the more hungry you are, the better food tastes. If you've ever been really hungry, you, you might agree. And the same is true with Christ and grace and what God's done for us on the cross. That the life force of our ministry is humility. As God's word comes and humbles us, our hearts become more and more hungry for Christ. And he begins to taste sweeter and sweeter to us. And the gospel becomes more and more urgent a message to us. And this question, how can I have peace with God? We feel our sinfulness. This question matters. And when this question matters, we start living our purpose as a church. When this question doesn't matter, when it doesn't feel urgent, we get sidetracked as a church into all kinds of weird things. But when it matters, we're on point, which is why we have to fight so hard against any and all forms of spiritual pride. So often we're afraid of the things that will humble us. Don't be afraid of what humbles you. Be afraid of what brings you pride. I think most of our life is a desperate you know, attempt. We find joy in what brings us pride. That's like the most dangerous stuff. The stuff that you think will humble you, that's the stuff that is the best for you. And it's good for you because the doctrine of justification is very fragile, Martin Luther once said. And, and not the doctrine, but it's place in our hearts. We can so easily lose the joy that God intends us to experience through the gospel by focusing back on ourselves and what we do or what we've done or what we need to do instead of Christ, which is why this year, the beginning of this year, as you look forward, you should be thankful and anticipate the ways God's going to humble you. And you should embrace anything God brings into your life that shows you how much you need Jesus. And seek humility out as a first prize, first prize this year. Refusing to trust in yourself, looking solely and completely to Christ, rejoicing in the righteousness that comes to you, not through your own efforts, but through his, which you've received through faith, because that's how you have peace with God. Not through what you do, but through what Jesus did. And we'll talk next week more about that and why it's such good, good news. But let's pray this year as we look forward that God shows us mercy, that he never gives us up to our pride. He doesn't abandon us to our pride, but continues to show us mercy by not letting us forget how desperately we need him. Lord, this gospel is amazing. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so, Lord, please help us not to get distracted. 
Help us not to listen to a bunch of blind men tell us about what they don't see. You have opened our eyes. We have seen the beauty of the gospel. You, we've seen how urgent it is. Holy Spirit, we're, de we're desperate. We ask that you would continue this year to hit the refresh button on the gospel so that we might find joy in this message about what you have done, Jesus, and we might be urgent as a church about taking this message out. And we pray this in your name. Amen.